Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. Today, we are joined by Dr. Wesley Payne McClendon, where we discuss the habits of successful leaders in times of crisis. Welcome, Wesley. It's so great to have you here. And today we're going to be talking about the habits of leaders in crisis. Now, we all know that when things are going great, it's probably a heck of a lot easier to lead. But what happens when all of a sudden the world changes? And as a leader, you have to make changes and you have to do things. So today, let's talk about what it is that leaders, the type of skills and the type of things that leaders need when they go through the crisis. And I'm going to throw out an easy question first. And I'm going to ask you if leaders are born or are they made? And I'll start with you, Wes. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, a combination of the two. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of nurture and nature. Um, there are people who are born leaders. Um, and you see that um, in various examples. Um, I see that in sports uh, quite easily, where people uh, are gathered around an individual who can lead them, who can kind of talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, you see that in corporate, um, where people have been um, seen to almost um, kind of get people to come around them um, as if they were um, a king or queen um, and want to be around them um, in, in, a, in a very real sense. Uh, but I think we have to be careful um, to recognize that that leaders um, in crisis, uh, whether they're born or made, it's contextual. Um, so where a leader may draw many people to them uh, quite naturally in one situation, that doesn't necessarily transfer to another situation where they would have equal um, mandate or ability to lead in a different situation. So. So as long as we understand that they can be both um, made, um, as in um, teaching one to, to be a leader, um, but also born, um, it is um, contextual. As my professor uh, uh, Rothwell used to say, um, it depends. It depends. I think anyone can learn anything if they want to. They have to want to. They have to want to be that or make that change within themselves, but the mere word crisis means you're not ready. I mean, if you were ready for it, it wouldn't be a crisis, right? So it's it's really around how do you prepare yourself or how do you build the base skills that are going to stand the test of time, whether you're in a crisis or just make you a good leader, but they're actually going to support you when there is something left field, when there is something that you're not expecting, when there is something that comes like a lightning bolt and you're not ready for it and your crisis management plan, you know, you can't just pull it off the top shelf. So I think they're the kind of crises that I'd like to have a conversation about today. Yeah, yeah look, it's a very good well, I, I was just going to say quickly that the, the idea is to build um, almost crisis capability um, so that, you know, Again, I'll use a sports analogy. In American football, we run at the end of practice um, two-minute drills. 
And you're given literally a, a stopwatch and you're given two minutes to score from whatever position you are on the field. The reason they do a two minute drill at the end of practice is so that you've had the exhaustion of practicing in a game-like situation. But what you're given is this two minutes to perform at a high level of complexity, uncertainty, viable, uh, uh, volatility, and crisis. The reason they do that is twofold. One is so you get used to performing in crisis such that two, when you do have to perform in that crisis, it's quote unquote business as usual. Exactly. So you've built capability to perform regardless of what comes at you. And I think the most important component of that is this notion of being able to reflect upon how you responded to this particular component of the crisis or the other so that you can effectively reflect, deconstruct, and then put back together um, the more appropriate or better or even more valuable behavior of leadership such that when that crisis comes about the next time, whether it be a two minute drill or actually at the end of a game, you're ready to perform much like it was just another two minutes throughout the game. And how could from that, from a situation, if you think about it, right from the very beginning. So we kind of go into that born or made kids at school, and the skills that they need at the very early stages of their development. And that carries on into high school, then into college, and then obviously at work. So um, those types of skills and those habits that they need to learn at a very young age are the, the made part. And, uh, and I know, I mean, when I used to, I used to um, interview executives all the time when I had my search firm. And seriously, you could interview dozens of executives that have high charisma they, you yeah. know they walk the talk all show and no go is what I used to call them because yeah. Yeah. you know they were very convincing about how good they were but the yeah. results weren't there and they couldn't manage in a crisis and then you'd have the ones which I called the really the silent achievers the true yes. leaders and they were the ones who had those consistent habits of what they needed to be able to make a decision quickly, have the thought process in it, but also more importantly, because during the crises over the years that I've seen, there wasn't a plan. It was like the companies didn't have, they had their disaster recovery plans, but that's a different one, but they didn't have a crisis plan to sort of say, if this happens, they panicked. So the ones that weren't uh, good leaders panicked and made harsh decisions like redundancies and um, restructures too soon. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think it, it kind of gets back to this idea of, of practicing crisis. It, it is giving people, you know, within a team tasks that stretch their boundaries so that again, because what tends to happen in crisis, and I'm sure you know this as well, um, you revert back to what you know best to what you've done before, regardless of whether it's been successful or not. You kind of fall back into your um, comfort zone. So the idea is to build capability so that your comfort zone becomes one that can function at all levels of crisis, again, as, it's, um, as it would be termed business as usual, so that you're not stressed because there's a crisis coming through the door, you're good because you know 
you and your team have managed this type of crisis before, or you've built the capability within yourself and your team so that regardless of whether you've seen that crisis before or not, you're able to leverage those capabilities such that it would appear, yep, I've never seen this before, but I have the capability um, and the leadership uh, to, to be able to, to move through that crisis with not a lot of, of um, consternation. So to your point, when you see people respond to crisis and they, you know, they're pulling their hair out, those that have here, are able to kind of pivot in a way so that they can say, okay, cool. Um, you know, and look, one of the articles that I wrote talks about um, the fast brain leader. And in that article, I talk about being able to identify patterns of behavior to develop shortcuts um, so that what you're able to do is recognize the bigger picture, i.e. the patterns of behavior, so that you're able to know where to pull resources, certain people that may act a certain way in certain situations, others that may act differently, but to be able to pull those resources together and to give them responsibility for doing what they do best. Um, and your responsibility is to manage that external piece. So you're not getting, you know, way into the weeds, um, which tends to happen. We obviously will talk about this idea of remote leadership. But if, if you're able to develop purpose and share that purpose with others, your main piece in the context of crisis is to let go, let go of control and to trust the skills and capabilities of the leaders that you've put into place, you you can literally get in the way of leadership. You can literally get in the way of people managing crisis um, by micromanaging or effectively getting in the way of their progress. So again, if you're able to step back, build that capability, give up control and have the trust that allows people to do what they do best, um, you'll be better suited for managing crisis and leading through it. And this takes an enormous amount of personal awareness and work on yourself. And I just want to pick up on one of the comments you were making earlier around a good leader, um, uh, you were using the, the sports analogy, takes time to reflect and deconstruct and to invite a review of what's happened. But for a lot of people, that would make them exceptionally uncomfortable how many leaders do you believe, or just in terms of the, the work you're doing, how comfortable do you think leaders are around having that, that real deconstruction, warts and all, to kind of go, okay, we, we didn't play this well. Let's make it about the activities, not the person. Let's make it about the actions, you know, not about, not about a personal thing. And how can we do this better? Are, are people doing that? Because my sense is that, it would be very few leaders that would be open to that kind of vulnerability. Well, I think you're absolutely right in, in all the points that you've made. I think one of the critical points that leaders don't do, um, in fact, if I step back for a second, when I talk to leaders, whether it's you know in a coaching or a mentorship um, capacity, the first thing I do is I say, let me see your schedule and let me see your budget because this is how they spend their time and this is how they spend their money. Um, and so what you'll tend to see is a, a, a diary that has a ton of meetings, but there's no opportunity to reflect. Um, and I know when I was at Ernst & Young, I used to have my EA schedule my meetings so that I would have obviously the time 
at the meeting, but I would have a time after the meeting to reflect on what took place. Um, and I call them, you know, reflecting on critical incidents, whether it's a meeting, a speech, an interaction in the hallway, whatever the case may be, you have to give yourself an opportunity to reflect on that critical incident. And as I said before, re reflect upon it, pull it apart, and then reconstruct it based on the idea that you've now reflected on it. How could I have done that better, that interaction with someone I hadn't seen for a period of time or leading a meeting or even sitting back and giving someone else the, the stage. Um, how could I have supported them better? So if you don't have literally on your schedule or within your diary an opportunity, um, I guess most likely right after that interaction, at the very least at the end of the day to reflect on those critical incidents, you're missing an incredible opportunity to reflect upon yourself and to evaluate how you can do these things much better. Because we're so busy rushing, right? We're so busy rushing from meeting to meeting and, you know, the throwaway line is, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm so busy. But that doesn't actually achieve anything in the long run and it doesn't enable us to have the insights that we need to have to be better leaders. No, because you'll, you'll continue to do the same thing over and over, um, you know, in that article that I mentioned, uh, Fast Brain Leader, I talked about how pretty much what we do um, has already been um, constructed in an unconscious um, existence where about 95% of what we do is repetitive. So we've got a small window of opportunity to look at what we do, you know, whether that's you know, brushing your teeth, putting the toothpaste on with your left hand, brushing with your right hand, you know, I've got a electric thing. So it's 30 seconds each, you know, of the four components of my mouth. But we do these things over and over again without recognizing or again, pulling back and saying, how can I do this differently or better or get more out of it? And again, looking at those patterns of behavior, the only way that you're going to do something different is by recognizing what you do all of the time. And the importance of pulling those um, patterns of behavior apart, um, being able to say, you know, it's kind of like autopilot. Um, one of my buddies from school is, is, a, is a captain um, and, and flies in the U.S. And, and, and I said, tell me about what it's like to fly on autopilot. He said, we actually only fly the plane when we take off and land and everything else is on autopilot. Why? Because the systems and processes within the plane allows them to recognize different patterns of, you know, the, the altitude, the wind, the thrust, all of these various things that we literally can't process all of that information. But the idea is to get ourselves so that we can function on autopilot, in effect, being able to see and sense all of these various things that are happening and adjust ourselves accordingly. And you can't do that in real time. You have to do that upon reflection. Right. But well, they'd have to be used to the bird strike. <laughs> right. Exactly right. <laughs> if that happens, what do we do now? Exactly. You know, whether or not, okay, because the, the reflection side, uh, like uh, 100%. But do you think a lot of the leaders today are a bit, they don't, they don't sort of um, spend the time with their teams to do that reflection or provide that critique 
about, okay, this didn't work so well, didn't work. So, so we need to do it this way. And because they're worried about, um, you know, hurting someone's feelings or they might take it the wrong way. How are companies going to get that kind of culture built where people are willing to take critique and reflect on their processes that we not doing this right. We need to do it this way without people feeling like they're being blamed. Yeah. And that ties into innovation as well. It ties into it's okay to fail. Yeah. It's okay to fail and owning. It, it, yeah. Our, uh, mistakes. Not only is it okay to fail, it's, it's encouraged. I encourage people to fail big, like big hairy failures because we don't learn from success. We learn from mm. failure. And, and again, that's that's such a critical way to look at it. And for example, it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be my place as a leader to go to one of my team and say, you did that wrong. The, the better play is actually to ask um, one of my direct reports, um, how do you think you did? Or making sure that they had an opportunity to reflect with me um, even before that to say, hey, listen, I want you to think about what took place. You know, I mentioned this idea of an after action report or um, post-crisis evaluation, whatever it is that you want to call this notion of reflecting on critical incidents. But the idea would be to give them the opportunity to reflect on what took place and then to have a conversation. Most of leadership, in my estimation, is having conversations with people about how they're doing, their development, and how you can support them. Leadership is not, um, you know, waving your finger and telling them how poorly they did. It's literally about asking one simple question. How can I support you? Um, and, and whether um, you do that on a, on a regular basis, which I would always say is, you know, probably once a week. Um, at the very least, it's um, every other week which is why you should probably have at most somewhere between five and six direct reports as a, as a kind of a tipping point. Um, but the idea is you have to have those conversations on a regular basis so that a you're listening to them talk about what they're doing and how they're reflecting and changing and pulling apart things. And again, listening to that, you're getting in your mind how you can support them and whether that's, verbally to say, here, here's what I think we can do that I can do to support you, or whether you do that um, by hearing it and providing them almost by stealth opportunities for them to learn and grow. Absolutely. Well, I don't know who said it, but somebody famous said leadership is contagious. And it's so true because, you know, actions do speak louder to work. And if your staff and, 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 um, people are seeing their leaders panicking and not reacting in the right way at a crisis point, that's going to filter through just like if they see them doing the right behaviors on, on how, um, how to operate. And I mean, when we look at just the last crisis that we've gone through, there are things that probably really good leaders have done to turn the ship around. And there's two different kinds. There's, you know, there's obviously the big corporate, but then there's mm -hmm. also the companies and the, the leaders within smaller companies who have it really tough because mm. their, whole their whole livelihood is dependent on it. So they're kind of going, all right, this is bad. And, you know, I've got all of my money into this business, everything. What am I yes. going to do? And, th and there is a probably a different panic 
and, and, repeat, and repeat of the panic because it's like this one crisis and you think, okay, it's going to be okay now, and then whack, you're smacked again, and then you kind of get up from that and then whack once again. Yeah. Look, look, I, I, I think from my perspective, the same rule applies or the same perspective applies, whether you're a large corporate, you know, a, a president even, um, or you know, a small business owner who has, you know, two employees that, you know, look at him or her um, to, to survive, um, you know, with a wage that they need to get every every week. I, I think the, the biggest piece that's missing from a lot of these conversations is is around purpose. And, and I don't mean that as a as a throwaway comment or something that's a, a cliche, but I mean, specifically saying, what is it that I Wes, am trying to achieve in this business? Um, um, and even more universally, what am I trying to achieve as a person? What, what drives me to, to start a business or to, to show up for uh, an event or whatever the case may be? What is my purpose? But more importantly than my purpose, it's being able to share that purpose so people become aligned to and find commonality with that shared purpose. By doing that, you change the dynamics of how you're interacting. So you don't necessarily have to, to tell people to do certain things. Well, you know we need to do this because purpose. Or you know we can't do that because of purpose. Or you know we need to be driving towards this because of purpose. But because they now share that purpose, it becomes you know, yin and yang. We don't have to focus on, on the silly stuff. We can focus on the stuff that we know that we need to do together. If that purpose is shared and becomes a, a common purpose, I think it's less likely that in the context of crisis, we have to do a lot of explaining. We have to take the time to say, well, well, you know, we're trying to do this and therefore fill in the blank. They know because they've bought into that same purpose. They know um, what we need to do next. And so it's less about trying to um, herd cats um, and, and more about trying to manage the periphery. And again, giving up control, trusting your people, um, because what we share um, is a purpose that both of us have bought into, whether that's communicating bad news, um, unpopular decisions, whatever it may be. If we're taking people on that journey, and that journey that we both can assign ourselves to in terms of purpose. I think we have a, a, a far greater opportunity to succeed than if everyone felt as if everyone was in it for themselves. Yeah, I mean that I think that's so true. And for me, it's purpose and values alignment. And I think those those two are kind of intertwined. My sense is that there's in a number of organizations, there's a mismatch between the leaders per purpose and their values and the values of the people. So there's there's this little bit of rub at the moment in terms of employees can't employees inquiring, is this the kind of leader I want to follow? Is there values alignment or is there a mismatch and I need to find a different home? And, and I think there's a little bit of that happening happening right now where the leaders are having to actually be their purpose, not just speak yes. it, be their purpose and live from their values so that it can be really well seen. And I'm just wondering if the leaders are really up to being that purpose without them feeling that they're going to be a little bit 
soft because it's not soft. It's actually critical. No. Well, again, I think it's a really good point. This idea of being vulnerable. um, You know, I've literally, I said this the other day, you know, vulnerability is a strength um, and it takes a real leader to not so much admit, but confront and be transparent about their vulnerabilities um, to, to articulate them in a way that, um, you know, obviously they feel comfortable, but the idea is to just to put that out there. I think it's less that um, leaders um, talk about their purpose um, and more about the fact that they actually don't articulate it to themselves. Mm. Um, so that the idea of being able to transfer um, or align with a leader's purpose um, doesn't take place because, you know, direct reports, the rest of the organization has no idea um, what those values or purpose is. And so they're responding to what they think the leader wants. It's kind of like, um, you know, a bird that feeds their offspring, you know, they sit there with their mouths open waiting to be fed. Instead, they need to be a part of the hunt. They need to understand what we're trying to achieve together. So they're not waiting around to to get a better sense of what's on offer. They're out getting it themselves because we're all focused on the same thing. So so I think there's there's a sense of vulnerability that needs to be articulated. There's a sense of purpose and values, as you noted, that needs to be articulated and lived. So it's not just something that's you know, uh, a poster on the wall or a phrase behind the desk. It's actually who we are and how we live our lives, both in the office and at home and in life. Absolutely. You know, how many times have we seen those uh, plaques on the wall of companies, (laughs) of all their sayings and everything, but they weren't practicing what they were preaching and over the, you know over the years the the candidates who um would go through organ the senior candidates who would go through these organizations they they were uh, attracted to the companies who had that what you were saying was that purpose and the leader that had that purpose but also that the communication was was within the organization that it was something that was actually lived and also mm-hmm. you can't beat loyalty like no. when, when people like the hardest the hardest candidate that I that I would have um, ever would be the candidate who was loyal to their leader because you just can't get them out of an organization unless the opportunity is so wonderful because if they're loyal they want to stay there they want to finish what they started they've got a purpose they want to work for that person that person's giving them the challenge and helping them in their career. And when the when times are bad, they have empathy and they help them through it. And everybody's doing it together. And it's rare. It actually is rare. Well, you know, it's so funny you should mention that because um, Gallup runs these surveys and they've done it for a number of years. But one of the things that they talk about in terms of people staying or leaving an organization, it's less about the organization and more about their supervisor and what that supervisor or line manager provides them in terms of leadership. So again, back to purpose, it's probably unspoken in that context, but what they're saying to your point around loyalty is they're loyal to that individual's ability to let them be who they are, to get the best out of them, to to become their full selves. And that idea of leaving that individual 
and I'm sure the organization has some peripheral um, involvement in that question, but the idea I'm aligned to and loyal to an individual. Um, and if that person leaves, I'm likely to go with them because what they give me is fulfilling for myself and for them. Um, and that's hard to replicate. You know, the easiest thing for me was when I was doing headhunting as if a leader left was to go in and get the ones right underneath them. Because I knew if that leader left and there it was a strong culture and loyalty, that the people that reported to that leader would be worried about who the next person was going to be, unless yeah. they were in direct line for that role. So, yeah. but that was because people are scared. They're like going, oh, they're... If that per if my my boss who I love leaves, they're likely to come in and do a restructure, or you know they won't they won't um, hire me into the role. So headhunters know <laughs> yes. to go to go in and headhunt the people directly under that leader, the good ones. So yeah, there, there, there are two things that uh, CEOs tend to take along with them when they move from one role to the other. It's CFO and HR. Um, in, in that order. And so it's it's not surprising the, the reason why um, a CEO or a potential CEO would move to different organizations and have with him or her um, a team that operates, again, based on a shared purpose. But uh, you know what? I actually, and we've had this discussion before, Christina, uh, and I've had this discussion before, but I actually um, don't think a person is a good leader if they leave one organization for another and take people from their current organization, you know, but I mean, maybe 12 months down the track, but not right away. And the reason being is because when they go to the new organization, I personally, this is my personal view, I personally feel that that sends a message to everybody else who's there that those opportunities aren't for them. It kind of puts mm. a like they're going to bring their buddies over as as a headhunter. Then what I would see when people did that is that the the company that they were going to, um, the good the talented people were worried about that in that new company as well and thought, oh well, he or she's just going to bring their friends over or who they like and where's my opportunity and I. I could get people out of that company too. So it's a two-way thing. You know, I always thought we've had some conversations with some of the leaders that we've had on where their view has been um, to, to get to know the lay of the land first, get to know the company, see who the talent is, that type. And then if there are people that they do know from the past, mm. they will put them through that process, but much, much later. And they have to go through a process. I, I think that's the key. They have to go through the process. So you can't, literally just say, hey, I'm bringing this person, this person, and that person. I think, I mean, success is important as um, an outcome. And, and I think the process through which people find success, again, whether that's the team around them, the organization culture, whatever that may be, they're more than likely wanting to take that culture or people or processes along with them. So it, it makes sense that if there has been, you know, an inclusive culture in one organization, um, that CEO would go to another organization and want to, to literally pick up and take that inclusive culture with him or her. Um, so I see it as um, the idea of going through a process, I think, is, is definitely important. But I personally don't see anything wrong with an individual seeing 
success with a team and wanting to replicate that same success with that same team in another organizations, again, with the caveat that they need to go through a process to ensure that they've met the criteria of the role and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, having said that, just to clarify that, I had situations in the past where the underperforming company, so the company's underperforming and it's a disaster zone and they want a new team where I've had to bring the whole team over. So we, you know, we've brought the, the, the general manager, the whole, but the, everybody comes. <laughs> right. Oh boy. Those are actually very good placements, by the way. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so Wes, so, so what are some of the other skills that we haven't touched on yet that leaders need to have in crisis? Oh, look, I mean, I, you know, in, in that article that I wrote um, about the, the seven um, habits of, of leaders in crisis, you know, I kind of talk about, and, and to be honest, I think they're, they're less um, grandiose or, you know, some new information. I think they're, they're kind of habits that I think any leader that looks at what they're doing in the midst of crisis would kind of sit back and said, you know, given what just took place, these are some of the things that I would advocate um, for myself or others who've um, been engaged in this process of crisis. So, you know, the first one is around this idea of deliberate, deliberative um, decision-making um, or being decisive in that context. And, and, and again, it, it has less to do with some great new idea um, and more around the idea of bringing people to the table, both people who are supportive of your ideas and people who are not so supportive of your ideas, giving them equal weight and time for discussion um, and making a, a decision based on, on that deliberative environment. I think all too often um, organizations, um, especially leaders, put around the table um, yes men and women um, who are only going to validate what they already know to be a perspective um, or their version of the truth. Um, and they fail to bring in um, those people who have um, different but probably um, equally valuable ideas. Um, the, the second one is around this notion of uh, communicating objective truth. And, and again, I think in the midst of crisis, and, and I would make the caveat that most of these ideas around habits of leaders in crisis, back to this idea of um, business as usual, I would suggest that these are um, habits that should take place all of the time, not just in crisis. Um, but when it comes to communicating objective truth, it means to pull back from the emotion, become, you know, you need to be dispassionate um, and you need to be able to look objectively at actually what's taking place um, and then push that out as, as one source of truth um, as opposed to, you know, a bunch of different alternative facts and those things that kind of um, ebb and flow um, with a person's uh, personality perspective or um, means to an end. Um, and I'll just give you one, one more. Um, the idea of being um, having a problem-solving mindset. Um, I think a lot of people look at situations uh, and their first reaction is, we can't get it done. Well, we can't, can't do it. 
I think if you think through that, you know, I talk often about starting with the end in mind um, and literally reverse engineer your way through it so that what you're able to do is, okay, this is going to be tough, but let's focus on where we want to get to. And I think if you just were to start there to get consensus using the um, deliberative decisiveness process, looking at um, communicating objective truth, when you get to a problem solving mindset, it's, it's based on the idea that we all want to get to the same place or agreeing to the place that we all want to get to um, and working collaboratively to get there, taking as many people on that journey as possible so that you're not leaving anyone out. I'm, I'm working with an organization now and and the managing director said, you know, well, what's how many people should be at the meeting? And I said, absolutely everyone. And he said, well, why? I said, because if we come to a point at which a decision is made on where we want to go forward or how we want to go forward, it's important that everyone has skin in the game. Those people who weren't there won't know, won't have participated, and it's going to be more difficult for them to want to get on the bus uh, versus they may want to just say goodbye. I'm not, I'm not ready to be a part of that because I wasn't part of the discussion in which those decisions were made. So if you just start with those three, say for you know, sharing authenticity, um, you know, wanting to find success through others, um, it, it literally is, I would say, a roadmap for how leaders should lead, um, whether it's, again, in crisis or um, business as usual. Yeah. Well, we've we've come up to our time, so um, we're going to start our little wrap-up conversation or wrap-up process. Judith, what are your key takeouts from our conversation with Wes today? Well, if I look at um, leaders in crisis, one of the things that I would probably, you know, say, say to people that I love the idea of what you were saying before, Wes, about the problem-solving um, ability, because I think that is very important. But I also think that when leaders are leading or when a crisis happens, what uh, an important aspect is um, making sure that you also have um, keep keep it positive, like keep it positive. What is the opportunity that we can find out of this crisis? So it might be, OK, we're all, you know, during the pandemic, we all had to work from home and we can't go into the office. But what is it? Leaders need to be able to look at and go, what is it from this problem that we have? Um, that we can find an opportunity. So we might have to change our business a little bit. We might have to work a little bit a different way, but we, we, we have an opportunity here. So I think um, leaders, good leaders in crisis need to have a visionary part to them as well to sort of think past what mm. the crisis is and yes. think that, okay, it's not just today, the crisis happened today, but it's, it's probably going to go on for 12 months. What? How can we get through it and what do we need to get through it? And I think keeping positive, being a leader who keeps positive is really important because that's the only way you're going to keep your team positive. You got to keep them motivated and them positive and being a really good communicator because everybody, like Wes was saying, you got to get everybody in that room. You got to get them all to that meeting and get them all involved so they've all got a buy-in and they're all part of the decision. Yeah. Yeah, and the diversity of that group it, that gets together to make that decision or plot the course for making a decision is really important as well. So it can't just be, you know, people who have a certain background or have graduated from a particular school. The the innovation that comes from having 
differing opinions and differing backgrounds and perspectives is far more valuable than, than everyone making the same decision based on that sameness. Um, so that diversity piece uh, is really important. And that comes from this notion of inclusivity, um, innovation and transparency so that what you get um, is everything. Um, and in fact, I think it's, it's also having a, a vision, but it's also allowing your team to have a vision as well. And because that helps to, to um, move your vision in a way that is far more inclusive than just your vision on your own. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Also, as a leader, you need to make the people in your organization at every level, right? You know, the receptionist to the person in the, in the, uh, the back office feel comfortable enough that they can speak up. And they don't feel they're going to be shot down if they have an idea or because some of the greatest ideas or partial ideas come from people who are thinking about it as a clear eye, you know, fresh eye. So, you know, where sometimes people in the more senior levels, they just think about it all the time. They only have one way to look at it. And then you get somebody out who's never really looked at it that way and goes, hey, well, what? why do you think about it this way? <laughs> you go, no, listen, I mean, I... I tell people I have a you know a degree in music composition and orchestration, and they go, "How does that work?" And I'm like, "Well, when I look at organizations, I think of it as literally a score sheet. I think of all of the instruments, you know, down the the left hand side, and all of the measures across the top. And my role is to facilitate. It's to direct. It's say, I need you to be a little louder here. I need you to back off there. We need to increase the tempo. We need to slow down. But that's the way I brought you know this this kind of music component into the mix. But that's not like most of the folks that are sitting around a leadership table who have got business degrees, which I do as well, you know, who have um, experiences in certain types of organizations. You know, I write music. I've got a studio in my closet. Love How does it. that help? It provides a different perspective that had it not been in the room, we may never have gone down that path which may not be exactly the way I've gone, but I've helped to influence the conversation to come to a far more rounded and inclusive um, output. And the execution journey is going to be smoother and more harmonious. Yes, because 95% of entrepreneurs is, is uh, not the idea, it's the execution. Absolutely, absolutely. Wes, on that note, thank you so much. It's been a fabulous conversation with that, and we've absolutely loved having you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favourite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.